Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's the home opener in Cleveland. It's like a holiday every year. No place I've lived has treated baseball like they do here. I hope the weather stays nice. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, and I am here with Layla Tassi and Jane Cahoon for another Monday discussion of some pretty big news. Hope you had a good weekend. Just lovely. Yeah, actually, it's quite nice. Are you letting us off at four o'clock today, Chris? Uh, we'll see how much news we have. <laughs> Let's start. What does the director of the embryo lab at University Hospitals have to say about the disaster that destroyed 4,000 embryos and eggs in 2018? And what does he accuse the hospital attorneys of doing since then? Leila Tassi, this was a jaw-dropping story that came out of Jaga County Court on Friday. John Caniglia wrote it. What does it say? Well, so just on background, we're talking about the weekend of March 3rd through the 4th. 2018, when temperatures in the embryology lab freezer rose, leaving some 4,000 eggs and embryos non-viable, just a heartbreaking scenario. And so Dr. Andrew Botnager, who UH hired back in 2016 to, to oversee the lab, said in this affidavit, just scathing allegations here, that employees failed to properly maintain the cryopreservation tank where the eggs and embryos were, were being stored and that hospital leaders hired a crew of incompetent, insubordinate, condescending people to run this lab, and that he was basically powerless to do anything about that. He said that he is seeking to sever from UH's attorneys in this lawsuit filed by couples who were affected by this freezer malfunction, and he's being represented now by attorney Sabod Chandra, in the affidavit, he makes just the most damning claims against his former attorneys at Tucker Ellis. He says that they pressured him to lie during depositions and instructed another witness to destroy a document, specifically a report about the tanks. And Botnager said he, he couldn't hire or discipline employees. He urged the lab staff to place the embryos and the eggs in a loner tank, which would have allowed the employees to, to do preventive maintenance on the main tank. And that never happened. On the weekend of the malfunction, he, he says a technician was allowed to work completely alone and it was incompetent and had no business being in the lab without any supervision. He said staff had run out of liquid nitrogen seven or eight days before March 3rd and could not fill the tank. And he said that that is a, quote, hair on fire emergency. And overall, you know, he cited he cited an employee who refused to accept the late delivery on March 2nd. He called the move a callous and breathtakingly incompetent decision. So this is just a breathtaking set of allegations in this affidavit. He also, I, I think, discussed that these tanks weren't really the most appropriate tanks to be used in a lab. We Back at the time, we were all dumbfounded that they didn't have a redundant system where they had two sets of tanks and they divide everything. So if you lost one set, you'd at least preserve something for 
the people and they didn't and they lost everything. But what really struck me about this is here's the guy who's in charge of the lab. This was just a disaster in every way for university mm-hmm. hospitals. And the, the hospital attorneys are representing him through all of the settlements because all these people sued. And here he is three years later saying, I'm out. I'm not staying with you as my attorneys. You're not doing it in good faith. I'm going on my own with attorneys that I think will represent my interest. That's a dramatic statement. What did university hospitals have to say? Not much, right? Not much. You know, the hospital released a statement that strongly denies the claims made in the motion, but the the judge sealed this affidavit shortly after my colleague John Coniglia reported on it, and the judge has now issued gag orders in the case. Yeah, what's the point of sealing it after we already have it? The whole world right. can read it's, it. I know. I think we've published it, right? <laughs> yeah, we published it. That's ridiculous that it's sealed. The public has a right to know about this. The Jogga County judge is way out of bounds by sealing something like this. This is this is fiery, but people can read it on our website. We'll have to see how it goes. But I, this is somebody that is standing up to say, I'll tell you how this happened. And it's not the story they've told you. Right. And their lawyers are doing unethical things to try and keep people from learning the truth. You know, I I have friends who were affected by this disaster and I just I can't describe the heartbreak. It's it's unthinkable. My my friends had purchased a home that they anticipated could accommodate the children they planned to have, only to learn that their dreams of a large family were completely dashed by this. Wow. And they felt incredible pressure to settle their case against UH. As more and more families took the settlement offer, they were one of the you know final few, and I'm I'm sure that they're watching this case closely closely as it unfolds. Well, my wow. question is, if you made a settlement based on false pretenses by university hospitals, do you have the right to go back into court and reopen the negotiation? I would think you do. I mean, if you can prove what this doctor is saying is true. That then they negotiated in bad faith. Yeah. I would think you have the opportunity to go in, negate that settlement, and come at them even harder because it's a bad faith. Sounds settlement. like a great follow-up story. We are. <laughs> we already launched it this morning. Oh, good. Okay, great. <laughs> there you go. You're listening to this week in the CLE. What do Asian Americans in Ohio have to say about Lieutenant Governor John Houston's use of the term Wuhan virus and his refusal to apologize? or acknowledge the legitimacy of their concerns. Jane Cahoon, I think this story is going to have legs for another week because of what Mike Huckabee did over the weekend, where he put out a tweet saying, I'm going to start identifying as Asian to get special treatment. But Seth Richardson went out and talked to Ohio Asian Americans to say, hey, what do you think of this controversy? What did they tell them? Well, they, they came at it from various points of view, but they were quite eloquent in expressing their feelings about this. You know, some of them were disappointed. Some of them were confused. They didn't feel that Houston was like a bad person or inherently racist, but they didn't think that his explanation that he was attempting to criticize the Chinese government sufficiently explained why he felt the need to use that particular term, which, of course, was hurtful to them and they felt could lead to targeting people of Asian descent for for violence. It also made some of them feel like they don't really have a voice uh, that it, some said they thought that Houston or state government as a whole didn't really care about their struggles or their their issues. So they a lot of them said they just thought it was misguided. One thing I think it's really important to say here is that the Chinese government has been roundly criticized for 
their lack of transparency and cooperation during the pandemic. And and that's a shared feeling among many in the Amer- Asian American community as well. Many of them oppose the Chinese government themselves. But, you know, I think some on the right are trying to paint this as people trying to defend the Chinese government or being sympathetic to them and, you know, allowing them to escape scrutiny. And, and that's not what this is about. You know, you know, one person Seth interviewed, Ohan Loi Powell, a Vietnamese immigrant, said, you know, even if it was a deliberate attempt by Houston to criticize the Chinese government, it didn't make a lot of sense. You know, using that term or any other derogatory term, it doesn't really harm the Chinese government, she said. The people it affects are the people who are in this country and have to deal with it, is what she said. I thought that was really a profound statement. So, you know, a lot of them felt that Houston was contributing to this environment in which they felt worried for their own safety about this. Lloyd Powell, for instance, she said she was a political independent, but she had voted for Houston and Governor Mike DeWine. And now she's not sure, you know, what she's going to do. Of course, Asian Americans don't account for like a big political, you know, voting block. So I think that's one of the reasons they feel kind of marginalized here. Well, and you did suggest last week that maybe this isn't a mistake. Maybe this is very intentional playing to a certain base. And and given what Huckabee did, you start to wonder, you know, that that could be true. This could be a very intentional. The Asian American voting block is very small. So the damage in in just disparaging them is small politically, but it but it rallies the far right fringes of the base that are trying to turn this into a big red scare. You're yeah. right. They keep trying to say, how can you criticize Houston? China's out of line and it's got nothing to do with that. It's all about the marginalizing of, of an ethnicity in America. I, I should also say that, you know, this wasn't universal. There are some Asian Americans who think that Houston should not apologize. One of them wrote an op-ed for us. And the Ohio Republican Party, interestingly, is distributing that op-ed this morning in an email. So Interesting that they're not distributing the editorial that ran next to it, in which the editorial board called on Houston to apologize in no uncertain terms. Those two ran as a package, but the Republicans are only sending out one half of it. Right, right. So we do have a couple of lawmakers in Ohio who are trying to, I I guess one, one thing that some Asian Americans said they were disappointed with was that Houston apparently had promised before the 2018 election to revive what's called the Ohio Asian American Pacific Islander Advisory Council. He said that he and DeWine had been committed to reviving that that group, but now some legislators are trying to do that because apparently they haven't. Okay. I, I should also note that Houston didn't really want to talk for this story, but he, to- he actually told a reporter, I didn't offend anybody. Yeah, well, <laughs> clearly he did. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What's the latest project of the vaccine queens to help more people get protected against the coronavirus? And isn't their latest project supposed to be done by the Cuyahoga County Health Board? Leila Tassi, you wrote a great column about this, but you've since learned a few things that make it even more outrageous. Well, I just love these ladies. I just first want to begin by applauding them. Marla Zwingy and Stacey Benny, you know how you just your intuition just tells you when you found good people. These women are the real deal. 
So they've now crossed the threshold of booking over 2,000 vaccination appointments for people who needed help navigating the state's confusing, decentralized vaccine distribution system. And now they're also offering some special assistance to people who are homebound. They've been able to assemble first responders in suburbs where these folks live, along with pharmacists from Discount Drug Mart, who have really been a ready and willing partner for them in this effort. And they've dispatched them to the homes of of people who are either elderly and can't leave to go to the pharmacy or are medically fragile in some way. And among the people that they've helped vaccinate in this way are a World War II veteran who is approaching 100 years old, an elderly woman with multiple sclerosis, a man with severe Parkinson's disease. And they're just so happy to be receiving the vaccine like we all are and resume their lives and and welcome people back into their homes. I mean, some of the the people in, in these circumstances haven't hugged another human being in a year. But here's the thing. This is the job of the <laughs> Cuyahoga County Board of Health and the health commissioner, Terry Allen, and they are dropping the ball. At first, Terry Allen told them he would happily take the names of the people who were contacting the vaccine queens for this kind of help and that, you know, the board would arrange in-home vaccinations for them. So Marla and Stacy were like, awesome, here's the list. And Allen arranged one appointment and then they heard nothing else from him. And that wasn't good enough for the vaccine queens. I mean, I'm telling you, these two women are just so amazing and their energy and their level of organization. I mean, they should be consultants. Here's an idea. Why don't we just take all the money that we put into the Cuyahoga County Health Board, which has proven damn near useless throughout this pandemic, and give it to the vaccine queens. Uh, yeah, right. they have real results. They know what they're doing. We have talked over and over again for the past year about the lameness of the Cuyahoga County Health Board, how it's not accountable to anybody. No one is doing anything to make them accountable. You know, they were secretive in the beginning. They're just not effective. Here they are again, failing to do their job. Let's just go to the vaccine queens. You know, after 1918, we came out of the 1918 pandemic and the nation was determined to get public health right. As we emerge from this pandemic, (laughs) I'm looking at the vaccine queens as the solution for the next time. I know. For the Board of Health to answer in this way is just a complete abdication of their responsibility to the public. You know, it was interesting when I was talking to Marla and Stacy about this, they were talking about how like they're interacting with the Board of Health, you know, and, and then they realize like, OK, well, these folks, they're they're all they all quit for the weekend. They go home to their families. They enjoy Marla and Stacy are working like 18 hours stretches and they work all weekend. There is a feeling, you know, I mean, they have this this internal drive to to keep booking these appointments for people who are being failed by the rest of the system. And they're not getting paid. And they, you know, when they take a day off, they feel terrible about it. This is not the way the system should be working. We used to have at the Plain Dealer back in the day a thing where we pick somebody as the Ohioan of the year. We had to bring it back this year and just give it to them because nobody else is as deserving. I think, you know, at the end of the year, we always do this sort of wrap up of the, the, you know, best news stories or, you know, the kind of things that uplifted us. And these two will be at the top of my list of of candidates for that, for sure. They'll be on the top of a lot of lists and Terry Allen will be on the bottom. You're (laughs) listening to This Week in the CLE. How does today's forecast for the Indians home opener, the holiday in Cleveland, compare to weather for all the other home openers? 
Jane Cahoon, you're a huge Indians fan. We couldn't do today's podcast without talking about the Indians. And fortunately, Rich Exner provided the fodder to talk about it. Today's weather is looking about in the middle. Yeah, it's looking like we could go up to about 66 degrees, although I think there's a little uh, chance of rain during the afternoon. So I'd say it compares favorably to other games over the years. But, you know, when you schedule baseball games for April in Cleveland, we we all know anything can happen. So, yes, Rich did look look into his weather database and he put together a chart showing the weather for each home opener going back to 1901. Of course, what those don't include are the games that were not played, such as in 1996, the Indians were coming off their World Series appearance of 1995, and it snowed 7.1 inches on the scheduled opening day. And then when the opener actually occurred the next day, luckily there was no new snow and the temperature was 47, which is still still pretty chilly. And then in 2007, the uh, official home opener ended up being indoors in Milwaukee on April 10th, which was four days after the scheduled opener was called off because of snow after four and two-thirds innings. And they tried to reschedule that over the next two days, but those also had to be postponed because of snow. Rich says that over the years, 10 home openers have, have been postponed. And the oddity that happened last year, it was 82 degrees on the home opener. However, that was on July 24th because the coronavirus delayed the whole season. So there you have I, it. I remember the video we did back, it might have been 07, where they kept trying to play the game and it was this time-lapse video where they kept pulling the, <laughs> pulling the covers out onto the field. It would snow, then it would stop snowing, they'd pull the cover off the field. And I don't think that, I mean, that probably was 2007. They never played the game that day. But it was... And their first game, you know, which they played last Thursday in Detroit, it snowed then. And I, I thought maybe that one was going to be called, but they managed to make it through for Detroit's home opener there. Now, there's good data in Rich's story. Check it out on cleveland.com. Should our newsroom stop reporting that victims in rape cases were intoxicated when they were attacked? Leila Tassi, let me set this up. We had a story last week about the arrest of a guy who had, in multiple cases, was a predator with women that were very inebriated. One, he abducted off the street, took these Cleveland. Another one, he, I think he did locally, but they were downtown drinking and they were attacked. So we wrote the story because it's a monstrous case and we think people should be aware of this danger that exists when people go out. And we heard from somebody saying she was one of the victims, a 22-year-old who was very offended that we said she was intoxicated and, and questioned the motivation of doing so. So I, I responded to her saying, hey, look, there, there was no way any attempt to disparage you. We thought this was important information for people to know if they're thinking about going downtown, this risk exists. And intoxication of rape victims has become a national story because in Minnesota, a rape conviction recently was thrown out solely because the victim was intoxicated. She came back and said, OK, I get all that. You're, you're right to warn people, but I still don't think the intoxication should be in there. It's not necessary. And I'm back on my heels wondering, should we report this? Layla, you've done a lot of reporting on rape and rape kits and rape investigations over the years. Mm -hmm. and I just wanted to pick your brain a little bit and also hear what, what Jane thinks. Yeah. Well, so in this case, so the suspect in question here is 27-year-old Christian Burks, who was arrested and charged. And in one case, as you were saying, you know, he, he the police say he raped a woman in the backseat of his car outside a club on West 6th Street. In the other case, 
a woman was leaving the Barley House, also on West 6th Street, I believe, with a friend. And, and in the time it took for her friend to kind of flag down their Uber, police say Burks abducted one of the women and took her to a motel in East Cleveland. And her friends were remarkably able to track her phone there. But by the time police arrived, Burks was gone. And DNA connects him to these cases. And neither of the women knew him at all. And so, yeah, in our reporting of the incidents, it was noted that they were intoxicated, that they were unable to defend themselves. And the woman who reached out to us, her point was that she has every right to enjoy alcohol during a night out with friends and without fear of being raped. And that our description of her as being highly intoxicated leaves the reader with the impression that that's an excuse to rape people including the place where it happened is important to public safety. She she made it a point to note that, but it's unnecessary to say that she was highly intoxicated. Women were kidnapped and raped. That's the story, period. And, you know, I, I, I have to say, I had the same thought when I read this. And I actually think that it makes women less safe when we emphasize that the victim in cases were intoxicated because it suggests that if you are not intoxicated, you'll be safe, which frankly is not necessarily the case when we're talking about serial rapists stalking the streets of Cleveland, intoxicated or not. It would be very difficult for a woman to fight off a man who is intent on abducting and raping her. And I know our reporter, Adam Freese, he would never have intended to do that. He's an amazing reporter, a wonderful person. But, you know, unfortunately, I think the use of that detail does come across as a form of victim blaming. And victim blaming not only is hurtful and traumatizing to the survivors in cases like this, but like I said, I think it leads us to a false sense of security that if you're not intoxicated and you cross paths with someone like Christian Burks, that you'll be all right. All right, stop a second, though, because he preyed specifically on women that were so drunk they couldn't defend themselves. That, that's what his MO was. That's what he was looking for. Don't you think people who might be drinking downtown would want to know that, that they might think, you know what, I'm in a place that's dangerous if I have more than, more than I normally do. But I and would say, I walk, go ahead. And if I walked out <laughs> of this bar completely inebriated, that there are predators that will seize upon me as opposed to others who aren't. Is it a detail that people who might want to head downtown to want to know? You used to be 22, 23. Mm -hmm. Would you have wanted to know back then, if you were going to go downtown with your friends, that there was somebody looking for drunk young women to abduct and rape? I think that it would, her point, which I agree with, is that it has more to do with noting the location as a potentially dangerous location instead of noting the behavior as potentially endangering oneself. That is the victim blaming aspect of it. That if I go downtown and if I get intoxicated, I am putting myself in harm's way instead of like, well, hey, you know what? Let's avoid this neighborhood because I heard there's a serial rapist about and let's go to Lakewood or let's go to Tremont or let's go to, you know, wherever. I think that that's, that was the point she was making, is that, yes, tell us where it happened. Tell us, you know, this, this guy is stalking this particular part of town, but you don't need to put the blame, the onus on, on the survivor here. 
And, you know, and, and like I said, I think it really creates a false sense of 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 safety. Because All right. if I'm All standing right. on a street corner waiting for an Uber and, and Christian Burks is standing beside me, I'm not safer than 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 someone who's had a few drinks. I, I don't believe so. Jane Cahoon, I'm going to put you on the spot. What do you think? Uh, I'm <laughs> struggling with this. I, I don't feel quite the same as Layla. I, number one, I think we should note that we never identify rape victims. Yeah, point. The other thing I'm struggling with is that you know, when when somebody is that intoxicated, they are unable to consent. And that's perhaps an important detail to show that, in fact, this was a rape. And, you know, this could happen anywhere. It's not like because we said it happened outside the barley house that that means that's like a haven for serial rapists. I mean, it could happen anywhere. So, I really feel for this woman and I really hate the idea of blaming victims. I mean, there over the years there are so many things women were blamed for like what they were wearing or whatever and that should just never happen, but I think it could be an important detail as you said to say, you know, there there are people who are out there unfortunately looking to prey upon women who are drunk. I'm going to write about this in the letter from the editor column I do this week and ask the 50,000 people who get that what they think. Because I'm torn on whether is this an important detail that the public would want to know or, or is the damage to the rape victim greater? It, it, it is the value to the to the victim and her friends of not revealing that detail greater than the value to the public? And I, I don't know what the answer is. I can I can see both sides of the argument. I want to hear from more people on what what is the right thing to do? You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What is so special about Intro, the building going up near the West Side Market, that our architecture critic Steve Litt did a deep dive on it over the weekend? Jane Cahoon, this is just an oddity. It's a fun thing to talk about. <laughs> yeah, as Steve summed it up, it's, it's a big building made of good old wood. That's what he said. So this is a $145 million apartment building going up in Ohio City that will be at least briefly, it will be the country's tallest mass timber building. So it's made of glue laminated columns and beams and cross laminated floor panels. Steve went into great detail of describing the construction site and how they were putting this place together. I, Chris, I think you should definitely visit this site given how much you like to work <laughs> with wood. So he points out that, you know, instead of using synthetic materials that contribute to global warming, this this place is going to, you know, highlight something that's sustainable, namely wood. I guess they're getting this wood from spruce trees harvested in the Austrian Alps near, you know, where Julie Andrews uh, sang The Sound of Music. But it's going to have 298 apartments, 35,000 square feet, and it's it's nine stories high. So that exceeds uh, an, another such place in uh, Portland, Oregon, which I think had eight stories or something like that. But there's another one going up in, in Milwaukee that's that's going to be 25 stories. So that that's by 2022, this it will no longer be the tallest but, one. But. but isn't there, didn't like Chicago burn down and that's why they don't have wooden buildings? Yeah, Steve I mean, pointed out that, that that's true, but but mass timber, you know, has it's evolved as a as a construction technology in Europe, and it's now viewed as competitive with concrete and steel in, in its strength and its 
fire resistance. Now, that's not universally agreed. They uh, apparently the National Ready Mix Concrete Association has launched a national campaign called Build with Strength, in which they argue it's risky to construct tall buildings out of wood. But, you know, they're complying with all all the codes, including Cleveland's. So, as I said, Steve goes into great detail about this. It's a really interesting story. It's a good story. I just I wonder about building tall buildings out of wood because wood does burn. I mean, you can do lots of things to make it to put fire retardant into it. But ultimately, it is a fuel that would burn unlike concrete. We'll have to see. It's an interesting endeavor, uh, and I imagine that uh, people will want to live near the West Side Market. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. All right, good discussion on Mondays. We always have good discussions on Monday. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Layla, for that good discussion. Thank you to everybody who listens. We'll return with another episode of this podcast tomorrow. 